reading from the Revelation to John. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits are, who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. There's a great story told from church history of St. Basil, who when he was confronted with a representative of the emperor and told that he should comply with the emperor's heretical wishes and that if he did not, Basil would be met with exile or violence or even execution. Basil responded to this very high up political man and said, think of some other threat. These have no influence on me. To which Modestus, who was the emperor's representative, is said to have applied, none has spoken to me this way before. Basil responds, you have never yet spoken with a bishop. This evening we are celebrating the Feast of Christ the King, the reality which St. Basil held quite clearly in his own imagination so that when he was met with political power who asked him to do something other than what Christ the King wanted, he refused, regardless of the threat. Which is to say, it's a reality that we would be wise not to ignore. In the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ to St. John the Divine, or as we typically refer to it, the book of Revelation, we are confronted with Christ's kingship through a variety of images and symbols, all of which are rooted in the liturgy of the church. In the verse immediately following our New Testament lesson, St. John begins to relate his visions by saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which is John's way of strongly hinting that everything he's about to say has a liturgical edge to it. If we were to read the book of Revelation from beginning to end and then map it out as a chiasm, which is an ancient way of 
writing poetry in a sort of mirrored style so that when you get to the physical center of the book, you also have found the central idea of the book. If we were to do that with Revelation, we would come away with this verse, which sits in the very middle of John's visions. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That is what the book of Revelation is about. We can see John setting the stage for this in these initial verses. Jesus is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And this is in the midst of a deeply Trinitarian sentence, but with some twists, right? John begins by saying, grace and peace to you from him, the Father, who is, who was, and who is to come. This is a designation of a deity that is pretty constant through time. Usually in pagan literature, like if they were talking about Zeus or whoever it might be, it's always a God who is, who was, and who will be. But John isn't content with that lack of urgency, and so he reminds his disciples that the Christian God is a God who is on his way. He's a God who is to come. Not only this, but rather than the typical order of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have the Father who is, who was, and who is to come, and then we have the sevenfold spirits which is likely a reference to the Spirit who has sevenfold gifts, numbers in Revelation being very important, the number seven being the number of perfection and plenitude, and then the Son. In this little introductory greeting, John is setting us up for what he is about to show us in all of his visions, that there is the Father who was and is and is to come, there is the Spirit who is fullness and plenitude, and then there is the Son about whom John will talk for the rest of his book. This is to prepare us for John's emphasis on the unveiling, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ as the king of the universe. It is this apocalypse, this unveiling of Christ's royal power, that is to be the primary orienting image of God for the church. This is reflected quite literally in most Eastern Orthodox churches. If you've ever been in one, I invite you next time you go to look up. Usually in the very center of the nave is an icon in the central dome of Christ Pentocrator, Christ Almighty, with a quote from this very text in Revelation. I am the Alpha and Omega, the one who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty. Christ's royal power is to be the primary orienting image of God for the church. And yet... There is something so otherworldly about the kingship of Christ, and I mean that in multiple senses. On the one hand, when we hear things like our Old Testament lesson for this evening with these descriptions of the Ancient of Days issuing forth fire and being surrounded by thousands upon thousands, similarly in the descriptions that St. John will give us later in his own vision, we are met with a king of such absolute power such consuming glory and beauty that it would be the most sensible thing in the world should we all be struck dead by the sight of him. But Christ's kingship is otherworldly in another sense as well. Because the gentleness with which he holds his power is something rarely, if ever, seen in our earthly politics. 
Christ's kingship is marked by a royal generosity, not just out of his excess storehouses, but a generosity of his very self. It is this king who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. What sort of royalty is this? What other king has given himself over to his people in this way? This is a paradox that we return to a lot here, that the clearest revelation of God that we have is the crucified and risen Christ. As Father John Baer says so clearly, Jesus shows us what it means to be God in the way that he dies as a human being. Jesus shows us what it means to be God in the way that he dies as a human being. We are so used to working a system based on self-assertion and scarcity. It's no wonder that Christ crucified is a stumbling block and foolishness in our world. It is almost unimaginable that glory and honor and kingly power could somehow coexist alongside such humility, let alone be somehow mystically expressed in that humiliation. My kids are starting to climb out of this phase slowly, but for a while they were obsessed with us printing out coloring sheets and then they would scribble them for a few minutes and then have my wife and I cut them out. And we've noticed after, you know, weeks of this request happening hundreds of times a day that they tend to obsess in their play like this. Other parents, you guys notice this? Where whatever their activity, whatever their play is, they, they get obsessed with it until they master it. And then once they master it, boom, they're on to the next thing. It's been striking to me how... Um, how childlike the liturgy of the church really is. This is the space where we get to come back to being children and we get to play in front of God's divine presence. And just like children, our liturgical ritual reflects our obsession over a thing that we have not been able to master, nor will we, at least not in this life. Every week, for thousands of years now, in thousands of cities, Christians ritually reenact Christ's sacrificial death. Week after week after week. We march in behind the cross, we march out behind the cross, we say the same words in the Eucharist prayer, we do the same action. Week after week, we are entering into Christ's sacrificial death through our ritual. So deep is its mystery, so profound its meaning, that in the best way possible, we remain childlike, running our fingers continually over that same groove, trying to get a sense of something that is so far beyond our ability to apprehend it completely. It will probably take us an eternity to find the edges of Christ's royal humility, glory on display for us in his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. We will never get to the bottom of it. It's fitting for us to rehearse this revelation with symbols and rituals because Christ's humble kingship isn't something that just exists out there. It is a kingship that is made present in a kingdom, namely in a kingdom of priests who serve his God and Father, as we're told in John's revelation, which means that the deeper that we are plunged into his kingdom, the more we too must be reflections of his glory, 
being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And here is where the paradox remains so important. Because the glory that soaks into us like sunshine as we sit before the divine is a glory expressed in self-giving humility. The king was always supposed to be the ideal of society. The righteousness, justice, glory, power, and honor of Christ's kingship are unparalleled. Likewise, the humility, the apparent weakness, and the submission of Christ's kingship are unparalleled. Even those of us who have been Christians for a long time seem to have this idea that the human Jesus just needs to get past the horrifying chapter of suffering so that he can get on with the real kingship. Tucked down in our theology somewhere, we have this assumption that Jesus waited out death for a few days and then popped back up to say, ha, you can't kill me, and I hereby abolish death. But that is not at all what the New Testament portrays. The risen Christ didn't turn back time and somehow undo all of the suffering he endured. No, he reigns now and forever as the crucified king. Do you guys, do you get that? He ascended bodily to the right hand of the Father with the same body that he had St. Thomas put his hands into the wounds. Those wounds are sitting next to the Father. As the Apostle John tells us later in his apocalyptic vision, that the one who stands in the center of the throne room is none other than the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. As St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossian church, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And a few verses later, St. Paul makes the picture even more stark. He says that in Christ's crucifixion, God was erasing the record that stood against us with all its legal demands. Quote, he set this record aside by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. What Paul is referring to here is a practice of kings and Caesars who would go out and conquer their enemies and then have a big parade in the citadel showing to the people their great victory as they parade their prisoners through the streets. But do you see what Paul is actually saying? He's saying that it's in the cross, in the bloody crucifixion of Christ, that God is already parading around the defeated rulers and powers of the world. It's a paradox. This is perhaps best summed up in John's Gospel, where throughout Jesus' ministry, he references again and again this coming exaltation. At one point, Christ says that if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. Exaltation makes sense to us when we think about kings. It usually means an elevation in rank accompanied with some sort of euphoria. It's being promoted, exalted, lifted up, but in John's usage, exaltations means nothing more, nothing less than being lifted up on the hard wood of the cross. Christ's ascendancy to the throne and his being lifted up on a Roman cross are one and the same thing. This is the starting point of all theology. There is no other world but the one where God comes and dies and in so doing 
sets into motion the renewal and resurrection of all things. Christ's kingship is not of this world. So what does this actually mean for us? Well, it means everything, but I'll give you just two. We come back to this idea time and time again here because the church calendar doesn't let us avoid thinking about our death for very long. But there is no avoiding death. And I don't just mean at the end of your life. I mean there is no pathway that gets around the cross of Christ. The cross is something that you are either repelled by as something too foolish, too awful, too pitiful, too wasteful, too much of a failure, or the cross is a thing that you are baptized into. And by the power of the Spirit, you are given the eyes of faith to see that this is the place of victory and peace, and that on the other side of the death that the cross requires lies true life. There's no going around the cross. You either break yourself upon it, or you pass through it in Christ's death through the waters of baptism. It is by entering into Christ's cross through baptism that God has, as Paul says, rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Not only is Christ's moment of enthronement when he is crucified, but the way that we gain citizenship into that kingdom is passing through the waters of baptism, the waters of death, into that kingdom. Which, of course, means that to follow Christ is to live out that baptism, to walk in the way of the cross, in death to self, and to see death to self not as acquiescence, not as victimhood, but as the way to victory over the kingdom of darkness. And the second thing that I want to leave you with this evening is that this means that Christ's royalty and his redeeming work are linked. Christ's kingship over all the universe is inextricably sewn into his work as Savior. His kingship is absolute, yes, and so there should always be a catch in our throat when we approach him. Let us attend with fear, right? But his goodness, his goodness goes beyond description and all knowledge. King Jesus is like a mother hen who longs to cover his little chicks under his wings. He's like a father who has spent every day scanning the horizon for his rebellious son, who when he sees him finally returning, runs to him and smothers him in kisses. He won't even let him get out his rehearsed apology. He just starts the party. This king is like a good shepherd who goes out into danger and discomfort in order to rescue his lost sheep that he knows by name. The mercy and goodness of Jesus are so, so good that even at this central moment to the mystery of the whole universe, this act that somehow stretches beyond time itself, 
In the midst of pain and death, where we're told the sky went black as night, the earth quaked and split, and the curtain of the temple was ripped in two. As God the Son is nearing the end, nearing death, nearing the pain of separation, he still has time to do what? Hear the deathbed confession of a lousy thief. What? This is the moment that the Son of God has been working toward from eternity past, and yet somehow he has the presence of mind to hear this dirty little man next to him say, I have nothing to bring, but just remember me in your kingdom. And what does he say to him? As if they are the only two people in the world. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is what it means to serve a crucified king. Whatever pain you brought with you this evening, I'm aware that Thanksgiving just happened, and being with family, as it turns out, can sometimes be painful. Wherever you've been this week, understand this paradox. Christ's power and glory and authority are beyond anything that we could ever imagine. If we could see it, we would be struck dead. And yet his goodness is such that he knows you. He knows you. He knows your name. And he is searching for you until he finds you to bring you into his kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.